Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you decided to join us tonight. Welcome to the program. Again, like I said, my name is Conrad Weaver. I am the host of this program, and I'm also the producer and director of the documentary film PTSD 911 that is in production right now. We are telling the story of first responders who are dealing with the traumas that they have uh, experienced over the years and are suffering from post-traumatic stress. And this subject has become near and dear to my heart. And because of that, we launched this podcast show as a resource for first responders and those who support first responders. In just a minute, I'm going to introduce our guest. But first, if you uh, are if you are so inclined and you have not followed us on our social media pages, please do that. Go to Facebook or to Instagram or all those social sites and check us out. We are everywhere you can find us at PTSD 911 movie. You can look for all for us on all the socials and follow us there. It's a great uh, resource to connect with other first responders and other people that are interested in this story, in this film. And if you haven't checked out our website, go to PTSD911movie.com. Check out the website and all the resources there. There's our film trailer and uh, all the other things that, that kind of give an explanation for what we're doing with the documentary film. And you can also, if you are so inclined to make a contribution to the film, it is a tax deductible contribution through our friends at the Film Collaborative. And you can uh, make that donation there on PTSD911movie.com. So tonight we have a very special guest. Robert Mann is joining us from the great state of California. Robert is a uh, former law in, in law enforcement. He is the co-founder of Pathfinder Resilience an organization dedicated to preventing public safety suicides and empowering people with the resilience to live their best lives. He served for 25 years at the Orange County Sheriff's Department here in California and has served in the U.S. Marine Corps. Thank you for your service, uh, Mr. Mann and all those agency types. And today he's also working with Pathfinder Resilience. And tonight he's our guest. So Robert, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Conrad. It's a pleasure to be here. Just a few months ago, we were introduced uh, virtually. And then just about a month ago, or even less than a month ago, we actually met in person and had a meal together and uh, had a great time getting to know you. And uh, thank you for what you are doing for first responders in, in the areas around the country. Uh, so tell us a little bit about you. And we heard a little bit about your background, but tell us about your, uh, your background, your journey to where you are today. Thanks, Conrad. And actually, you know, if I remember correctly, we met at a conference in passing uh, at first. I uh, uh, can't remember which conference it was exactly, but uh, we met someplace and uh, I heard was about it, the project you were doing and I chased you down. Uh, I stopped it you. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the uh, FOP Wellness Summit, was it? Did you go to that was, last year? Yeah, it may have been the Nina Conference or the Navigator okay. Conference. Yeah, but, the Nina Conference. Yeah, that's where it was. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about the project you were doing, so I stalked you out on the uh, on the conference <laughs> floor and, and and tracked you down to to talk to you and find out more about it. But uh, thanks for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate for the, the opportunity to talk about uh, the state of mental health within first responders and, yeah. and what we can what we can do about it, and what we are doing about it, and and what else we should be doing about it. Sure. But um, so I uh. I, like a lot of uh, former law enforcement people, started in the Marine Corps, and uh, I was in a small town, and a lot of the cops I knew had been in the Marine Corps, and so I, I knew when I wanted, when I grew up that I wanted to be a cop, and so in my juvenile mind, you know, since the cops I knew had been in the Marine Corps, I thought the path was to go through the Marine Corps, and it was a great experience. Uh, I met a lot of great people. It was very formative uh, to who I am today, and uh, exited out of the Marine Corps and was lucky enough to get picked up by the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and you know, back in those days in the 80s, getting into law enforcement, getting in was a full time job. Hmm. Uh, you were you were spending every weekend going around to different places. There's no Internet yet. So you had to go wait in line to pick up the the uh, the physical applications and, and turn mm -hmm. those in. And, and it was phone calls back and forth between you and your background investigator or, or whoever was doing that process uh, to get you through. And, and you'd apply at multiple agencies at the same time. Uh, and, and I always viewed myself as lucky in the in the aftermath, of course. Back then, for me, it was like you know, it was like somebody wanting to go to prom. You you go with the first person who asks you, and I was lucky that the sheriff's department asked me first because mm -hmm. uh, 
they were a large or a, a relatively large organization that had a lot of opportunities. Um, and of course, of course, if one of the other agencies would have asked me first, I, I would have jumped on it there. But but later on, having gone through the academy with many people who were on some of those smaller agencies, um, they didn't have the opportunities that I had because uh, they were just smaller organizations. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they have their benefits uh, that, you know, every single person there and it's more of a more of a family. Mm -hmm. uh, there is one person that I went through the academy with, and I think I may have seen him one, one time. Hmm. the entire time on the department. Uh, it was a large mm -hmm. enough organization that, that I think I saw him one time at, at a training event and that was it. Uh, so, th so there's a good and the bad of going to a large organization, mm -hmm. but let me uh, jump in a lot what, of the process. So, Go ahead. So, so this isn't you know, completely related, but I want to, I want to figure out, okay, you know, a lot of people in law enforcement and first responders have been through you know, the armed forces or armed services. How did your experience in the Marine Corps prepare you or not for a, a, a peace officer position. Wow. In, in so many ways. And of course, you know, now we hear in recruiting, there's the argument of, you know, where do you get the best candidates from? Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm a firm believer that the, all the branches of the military prepare somebody for a, a, a career in public safety in so many ways, the, the, the discipline and the depending on another person, uh, the, the, um, the realization that you know you can you can hear about it, but you're living in a world where your your everyday reality is somebody depends on you doing your job correctly, hmm. and, and to say that you know uh, lives depend upon every single job, it's true, uh, and we could take it all the way down to the people who are providing food. It, you know the army marches on its stomach, so to speak, but <laughs> but sanitation. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is somebody doesn't do their job correctly hmm. in food service, and now you have an entire you know, unit who's down, uh, you know, with some type of illness because, because mm -hmm. food hygiene wasn't taken care of because somebody decided not to do their job correctly. And it's a little, a lot of little things add up to a big thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's that, that realization and, and the reality in the military that, that every single thing is important from the top to the bottom. Uh, and, and yeah, some certain jobs have more accountability than others and more responsibility. Uh, and, different privileges come with different rank, but also different um, accountability comes with it. And so every single job's important. And, and I think that learning that and, and accepting that as a way of life helps you in law enforcement because there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different functions that take place on any given shift to make it a, a safe and effective shift. Hmm. You know, arranging some people are doing, you know, traffic, there's your, your traffic people and your homicide uh, investigators. Mm -hmm. uh, each serves a completely different function, but they're they're equally important in, in making the whole community safer. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, it takes a. There's. I, I was never a traffic guy, but but I know the traffic guys. I knew they truly believed that they were saving lives. They mm -hmm. knew that every time somebody saw them writing a ticket, it slowed people down. Mm -hmm. And just that mere act of of somebody being seen writing the ticket slowed traffic down for a while, and it made it a safer environment. And people mm -hmm. become aware. Oh, they're they're writing citations here. So. The people taking their job, whatever that assignment is, very seriously, um, is something that I think is 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 something that I came out of the military with. That mm -hmm. every assignment is important, um, no matter how many stripes are on the shoulder or how many uh, stars or bars are on the collar. Every job is crucial and needs to be done to the best of your ability because mm -hmm. somebody's depending upon it. So, how did your time? You spent what twenty five years in the sheriff's department. How did that? prepare you for what you're doing today and how did that lead you into working you know with with uh with you know places off with with agencies all over the country teaching them resilience and, and wellness well as as i left law enforcement and and it was just time for me i i i left after 25 years i was working at the bomb squad at the time that i left and that was the best assignment i ever had and i had all great assignments i have to look back and say i was very lucky uh there were a lot of opportunities and i jumped at every single one i wanted and was fortunate to get most all of them that i requested and um coming out of the bomb squad into uh you know i, I left because i become very involved in training hmm. early on i was lucky enough uh to get the opportunity to teach at the academy on a part-time basis which led to teaching their full-time um teaching arrest control techniques a lot of places are called defensive tactics and from that teaching experience there, it led me to each assignment I went to, 
for whatever reason, uh, because I was willing to go ahead and, and try to develop classes and try to teach it, I was tasked along the way with teaching whichever discipline I was at. Hmm. When I went to investigations, I started to teach investigations. When I went to the bomb squad, I was the training officer at the bomb squad and, and, and just became, uh, you know, training became more and more a part of my life, uh, just uh, developing in parallel to all the other skills that I did. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting lots of opportunities in my off time to work in the area of training for a bunch of different organizations. And when it came time to leave the department, I, I left to, to go pursue training opportunities. For a short time, for almost three years, I worked at a place called the Government Training Agency, which is really where uh, I, I kind of started cutting my teeth in a, doing work that wasn't directly, that was more in support of law enforcement and public safety instead of working directly doing it. And you know, from, from there, then I started my own company doing training uh, and was doing uh, fairly well, enjoying it, taking on new challenges. Had a couple of really good mentors and coaches in it who, who, who helped, um, allowed me to subcontract to them uh, doing work for them in the private sector which was really unique to get to, to work in that sector. And what I really discovered and what I would tell everybody working, uh, especially in the law enforcement field, uh, I can't speak directly to the fire service of public safety mm-hmm. on this. I, I assume uh, that this might be true also, but I'll say specifically to cops is that if you stop thinking of yourself per se as a cop and say, I'm a professional problem solver, because mm-hmm. that's really what you're doing. Uh, at, at every call you go to is you're, you're applying some type of problem solving model if you're successful at it. And you're doing it very fast with the information you have available and you're solving the problems to the best possible outcome at that time, mm-hmm. given the parameters you have. Now, could there have been a better outcome yeah, given more time and get more resources possibly, but what your job is at the time uh, you come up on any call or any uh, instance uh, is to create a solution to solve a problem. And you're given the tools to do it. Hey, with here's the law. He has to stay within these parameters. Here's the equipment that you're allowed to use. Here's the policy and procedure. Now, within that, work within that spectrum to solve a problem. And, and, and that is what really took me to the place where I felt confident enough when the opportunity arose um, to do other things that I went ahead and seized. It. And I'll speak specifically to Pathfinder Resilience now and how we ended up founding that organization. I uh, was very fortunate. I was, I was teaching in the California Post Management course. And the course coordinator, a, a lady, Sarah Creighton, former deputy chief of San Diego Police Department. And I spoke with her last week. Fantastic lady. Yeah. She's, uh, I believe she's the founder or at least co-founder of their wellness unit, she which is, is yeah. a, which is a um, very, very nice, very well done organization there. They, they do a lot there for, for their people. Uh, and, and a lot of organizations could learn by going down and, and checking out what they're doing there. But mm-hmm. Sarah uh, connected me with one of her um people that she had done some work with, Dr. Renee Thornton, uh, knowing that um, Renee was looking for some collaboration on a couple of things. And so Renee and I started exchanging phone calls and and we connected in a lot of ways in, in the way that we looked at problem solving and things that needed to be done. And so shortly thereafter, after that conversation, we had uh, an opportunity for me to connect her. Nina, at the time, National Emergency Number Search was one of my clients for training. And I connected them uh, together for to work on a grant in California. Uh, which just during that process, that collaborative process, Dr. Thornton and I connected on a lot of things. And we started talking about, hey, how, how can we take this program that she created that was born out of the HEROES project, uh, which was uh, a long-term project for her, where she examined that uh, a lot of things dealing with mental health and first responders was, was I guess the way you'd say it is operating the onesies and twosies area yeah. of taking one particular thing saying, hey, we're going to take this, this thing that we know works and we're going to try to make people better. We're going to look at mindfulness. Well, that's one, you know, that's one cog, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to take yoga, or they're going to take we're going to support dogs, or we're going to take a peer support program. And, and they were throwing these onesies and twosies at this. Well, mm-hmm. hers was the very first um, really academically validated multidimensional um, response to, to wellness. And, and, and that really struck me because I had sat in a lot of classes while in law enforcement. Um, that you said it and you go like, okay, I wish I had this eight hours left back. Hmm. Um, and, and it's not that there wasn't good material or content mm-hmm. that could have been beneficial. It's the delivery environment. Hmm. Uh, when you go to a class with a bunch of, uh, because let me just be as uh, satirical as possible here. Um, cops aren't judgy at all. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not not a judgy group. So when you go to training that's for for wellness, you know, or stress management, it had lots of different names, right? So you're in a stress management class, and there's 30 of you in there. Uh, the last one you want to do is you want to raise your hand and say, hey, my next door neighbor's friend's cousin has a drinking problem. Hmm. Because you're going to get 29 people looking at you and going like, so you got a drinking problem. Right. Uh, yeah, you can't ask any question in there because it's going to stigmatize you as having the problem. Uh, and I'm not saying that that wasn't the case. Sometimes it was that person who had the problem mm-hmm. and was asking the question by proxy. But um, many times they were just cur- genuinely curious about something for somebody they knew, but they couldn't ask the question. Or if you were seen talking to the instructor after class, people mm-hmm. will start to get curious because there, there is a stigma and, and, and fear within that community of, of having something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and, and I can say this personally, when I worked with, uh, with people, you want to work with people who have a strong desire to live. You mm-hmm. want to work with people who have their act together. You mm-hmm. want to work, you, you, you know, you don't want to go to work with somebody who has a gun on them who's contemplating suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. that's in your own personal self-interest. Um, you know, you don't want to you don't want to go uh, into an entry in a house with somebody who's had suicidal um, ideations, you know, mm-hmm. of dying on the job. It's 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 just not something you want to do, whether mm-hmm. it's realistic, whether that's a threat to you or not. Uh, that's not the point. It's, it's you just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so in those environments where you're you're talking about real room interaction with an instructor and other people involved in the field, you're you're it's just it's it's just not an effective delivery methodology mm-hmm. uh, because of the culture. So how do you fix so, that? So what we do and and what, how we the reason why I really um, in talking to Dr. Thornton and said like, hey, this is something that'll work. Uh, it, it's one is the multidimensional approach to it. So I, I like the content and believe that that was a better methodology um, of moving the needle. But it was the online anonymous delivery. This mm-hmm. is this was the gap. Uh, this was the the gap for individuals to be able to get what they, the tools they need to live a life of wellness is they can interact with the material and a mentor anonymously um, and, and let the material mean what it means to them. Because there's also the culture of a classroom of there's the cool kid concept, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas on the breaks, somebody who's got some uh, the informal leader who has power and influence over the others may say, oh, well, what the instructor said was this, and this is what it means. Hmm. Well, that, that informal leader has far more influence on the group than, than that instructor. Mm-hmm. And that, that's fine if the informal leader is actually correct, mm-hmm. but what if they're wrong? Right. And now you have a takeaway that's, that's incorrect. Uh, so by, by making it individual and online and anonymous, the only person who you're gonna interact with is, is the people who work within the program who signed confidentiality agreements and have been trained uh, and culturally competent in the way they mentor and they coach, um, you're able to take away from the material what it means for you. And also you're able to take away it in a correct way in a safe environment. So in looking at her delivery methodology, what she wanted to do, it was, and she was, and she needed a partner uh, at that time. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And so we, uh, we sat down together and we formed Pathfinder Resilience and, and we've been forging forward ever since. So, so what is resiliency? What's it mean to so, be resilient? So I, I'll, I'll give you the, the knuckle dragger version of it first. Mm. It means your bounce back. Mm. You know, what, what is your bounce back from whatever's going to happen, whether it's a stressor, whether it's trauma, um, challenges, you know, in life. It's like, how do you, what's your process for getting back to either one where you were before, uh, if, if we look at, if we were to give it an overall wellness score, right? Say like uh, on a scale of one to 10, suppose you're at a nine and you hit a challenge or a stress or a trauma. Um, how do you get back to being a nine? Hmm. And actually in a best case scenario is we take those traumas and we get back and we become a 10 mm-hmm. because it makes us stronger because we had tools going in. And, and so that's resiliency is we look at all these challenges that we're going to have in life and, and we're all going to have them. Uh, they're, they're, they're not like a lot of things, you know, Christmas comes once a year. It's always on the 25th of December. Um, trauma isn't that way. Hmm. It's not scheduled. You don't get to plan for it. It doesn't have a season. Uh, there's never a good time for it. Uh, it it's going to hit at the most, um, inopportune time. Uh, you know, it, it may hit when you're already in a s- diminished state, maybe you're already fatigued 
And, you know, one of the things that we try to empower people to do is to be intentional about their wellness ongoing prior to the challenge, because the state you're in when it happens will greatly determine how you're going to come out the other side. Hmm. And so it's getting yourself to the best place possible. I would equate it to falling in a swimming pool. Um, if you fall in the swimming pool and you don't know how to swim, now you're dependent upon a couple of things. One, did somebody see you fall in the swimming pool? Uh, if they did, do they know how to help you? Mm -hmm. uh, if they didn't see you fall in and they see you in after, do they know how to get you out and resuscitate you? And, and then how long were you under? Do you have now have some type of uh, brain injury because you, were, you, you, you didn't have oxygen for a period of time and you were unable to help yourself? But if you knew how to swim, right, or even better, if you become aware and, and learn how to walk intentionally around that swimming pool, we don't fall in to start with. Mm -hmm. We're able to see the hazard. And then the other component is if we do end up in that pool, we know how to swim. We know how to get ourselves to the edge and, and come mm -hmm. out of it. And once you've been through something like that, you know, like, oh, well, I'm not concerned about walking around the pool. I can go around the pool because I know how to get myself out. You have proven competence. <clears throat> you have the adversity. You prove to yourself you can get out of it. You don't fear adversity anymore. And you can come out of adversity out the other side, a better swimmer, so mm -hmm. to speak. So and I have a problem. I have a problem. I speak in metaphors and analogies all the time. So how do you do that in a culture where there's a whole bunch of people swimming in the pool? Or flopping around or flopping around in the pool, right? Or flopping, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, yeah. Flopping around and, and they're not sure what to do. They're, they're not sure if they're going to make it. Well, the, the first thing that I think has to happen is, is culture wide and among first response community is we have to look at wellness itself as a professional skill hmm. because it's just like anything else. You know, we have firearms training. It's a mm -hmm. skill we need for the job. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we go to specific training on it. We have metrics on how you're doing. So you know how you, you go to the range on, on a monthly or quarterly basis, depending on your organization and you fire the weapons you've been issued or the ones you're allowed to carry and you have come away with a score and you know how you're doing. And you could go like, oh, my score's a little low right now, you know, or maybe somebody looks at your target and says, hey, your scores are low right now. And, and, you, and so you do the work, right? Mm -hmm. You put the work in to get yourself where you need to be uh, driving, right? If we have somebody who has a lot of accidents on the, on the job, chances are they're going to get sent to emergency vehicle operations training. They're going to go back to EVOC training and, and, and touch up on those skill sets. Those are specific skill sets needed to, to work in this field. Well, we know in the field of law enforcement, we know that you're going to be exposed to things on, on a routine basis that most people are not exposed to. Hmm. And at least, at least not in the, in the frequency, you know, mm -hmm. people who sure. work, of course, in emergency medicine, um, in, anything having to do with helping people when they're in trouble, you're going to be exposed to seeing things, seeing people, other people struggle. Uh, if you have any normal degree of human empathy, uh, it's going to wear on you. When you see somebody suffering, uh, even though it may not be your loss, suppose you go to a home and you know the, it's it's always the tragedies that have children involved that are that are the worst, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this is Southern California, so we have lots of swimming pools, mm -hmm. and summertime, and you know it's it's you know the the baby in the pool call. It's it's mm -hmm. a common call, and it's not when you're going to get it, uh, or it's not if you're going to get it. It's when you're going to get it, and not all of them turn out well, and so. Um, you know, seeing the people suffering at that time, if you're, if you're, if at any degree of normalcy, it's going to wear on you. And the way to get through it to where you can actually function through the regular day is usually we, we start to depart from normalcy, mm -hmm. right? We, we don't want to be, we don't want to have that empathy. We don't want it to make us sad when we drive. We want to be able to perform our job and go back out and do the next car stop or whatever we have to do, go on to the next call. So you can't let, you know, let that, let that trauma get you down at that point. And that's not mm -hmm. a normal process. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it starts to wear on people and you're, you're chipping away at your wellness and the exposure, repeated exposure to these things. So we know we're going to have to do it. Um, like I said, we know that people are going to operate vehicles in an emergency way. They're going to operate the emergency vehicles in a way that's not normal driving. Mm -hmm. So we train them for it and we monitor it. Yet we know people are going to be exposed to these traumas uh, repeatedly but yet we're not arming them for it in a way that they can sustain themselves over a career. Yeah, I know we've become a first responder agencies. And I want to clarify that I'm not a first responder. I'm 
I'm a fan, and, and well, we appreciate and, and we appreciate what you do, though. <laughs> uh, so when I say we, I kind of you know I don't mean me, but I mean you guys. Uh, so I want to clarify that. So I guess over the years, you know, law enforcement agencies were developed, and fire companies were built, and all these things happened. And you're kind of building the plane as you're flying it. And so now you're, things are falling apart, so to speak, in some places, you know, how do you kind of make those corrections, you know, mid flight, if I can use another metaphor? Well, yeah, well, you know, well, one, we do know it's falling apart just to Mm -hmm. let's, let's validate that statement. And, And by the way, you know, yeah, yeah. You may have not been a first responder, but we appreciate what you're, you're, you're doing and we need more people on your team. Uh, yeah. that, that are, we need more fans, sure. uh, you know, cause, cause public safety has taken a beating uh, and a completely undeserved beating recently, right. yeah. um, which is another, another stressor, uh, mm-hmm. is, you know, just, just the, you know, watching the news and seeing the misreporting of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the job that's being done, the mischaracterizations of mm-hmm. people doing, doing things as they're trained mm-hmm. to be done and, and within the law and seeing it mischaracterized. Uh, on the news. It, and speaking of just even locally here, and I won't go into details, but there was an article in the newspaper and the headline was like totally misleading. You know, a, a man, you know, died at the hospital after had, having an encounter with law enforcement. And if you read the police report, which I did, you totally understand that what they did at the newspaper was totally, they, they wanted to hook you with this Thing that this guy that they wanted to say this man died because of their his encounter with law enforcement that was kind of the gist of it you know but it's totally unrelated so yeah back to your point as to what the media is doing in many ways you know is is adding those additional stressors to our folks who are responding to emergencies and taking care of our yeah. communities and, and that's and, and that's unfair really yeah it, it it's it's it, and and i think that Law enforcement in general is feeling is feeling something from it being unfair. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could have a, a group feeling, uh, I mm-hmm. think the group feeling is, is it's it's being very impactful to them in a, in a negative way, and and we know it, uh, and, and not not just that, but overall we know that depending on where you get your numbers, we've seen numbers as high as thirty five percent for PTSD among mm-hmm. law enforcement uh, dispatchers, somewhere between eighteen and twenty four percent, and then as high as twenty four percent among uh, firefighters. So so th- this is not even anywhere close to the, the PTSD among normal adults who don't work in public safety, uh, which is somewhere, you know, around 3.6%. That's, I've seen other numbers as high as 6%, depending on where you get your information. But of course, I've never seen anything remotely for the general public who doesn't work in public safety that's anywhere close to the numbers of the post-traumatic stress injuries that we're getting in public safety. And so, mm-hmm. so we know that what we are doing isn't working. So that's that's one thing just to get out of the way and say, hey, whatever we are doing, it isn't working. Uh, and, and you could look at other. I mean, PTSD is is the catchphrase. It's it's the word we want to talk about right now. But there's others such as depression, uh, which is which is um, definitely uh, a leading indicator of suicide attempts, mm-hmm. um, more so than PTSD. And and that's something that has to be looked at. And the numbers in most organizations and law enforcement is significantly higher than the general population. And, and so if we know what we're doing isn't working, we know there's a gap mm-hmm. and, and, and not just our organization, but there, there needs to be other organizations that are looking at what, what can, what can be done to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously you, nothing's a magic wand. We can't wave the magic wand and fix it, but find things that work and, and commit to applying. That's, mm-hmm. that's what has to happen overall. And it takes leadership. Really, you know, you ask, hey, how do you fix this thing mid-flight? Um, it, it, it takes leaders making a decision um, that, hey, we're going to create wellness cultures in our organizations. And there's a cost to that, right? There's mm-hmm. a cost in, in, in real cost, in real dollars, but there's also in effort and time and energy. And they need to define what it looks like. I would say the first thing that needs to happen is they need to make a decision whether they want to do it. Then they need to say, okay, what does good look like? And, and the, the term, what does good look like? I, I have to um, give props out to one of my, uh, my mentors when I was in the um, master instructor program in California, uh, retired Colonel Jim Frazier. Uh, really, is, it's a phrase that just comes back to me again and again. Every time we would look to solve a problem in training, he would say, what does good look like? 
Hmm. Um, instead of just starting work, you have to stop for a second and say, what does it look like? What, where does it want to, where do we want it to be? Okay, now let's do an assessment, find out where we're at. Let's find that gap and let's find the components in it and let's, and let's start filling that gap. And, and then you can put your good, you know, your good money, time, and efforts towards something that will really work. Um, then they need to actually establish a policy. All right, let's have a policy and procedures that support a wellness and accountability to that wellness. It's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. If, if, if an organization is going to tell somebody, we're going to allow you time to take care of your wellness, and they continually don't do it, and then they're going to complain to the organization, well, I'm physically not well, but yet you didn't take the time. We, we, put, it, we put a gym in. We just told you you could use it on duty. Mm-hmm. We brought in people to do yoga on duty. We brought in mindfulness classes that were optional. You skipped it. Uh, you know, if, if we're going, there has to be, it, it's got to be a two-way street. Mm-hmm. It can't just be a give, give, give on the part of the organization. Um, they need to also hold the team members accountable to use the resources that they're making available to them. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would say the next po- uh, component about that would be then um, creating a, a shared language around wellness. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I can honestly say that that's one of the things, you know, when we had, did our first uh, uh, large organization in California is the um, Joe Engler, the now under sheriff of, of San Francisco Sheriff's Department and Paul Miyamoto. I mean, there's great leadership showed there that they said, hey, we're going to it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. It's going to mm-hmm. be a scheduling nightmare, but we're going to put all of our people through this wellness training. Uh, and it was challenging for them. They had they had scheduling challenges. I couldn't even imagine because they had to figure out a way on duty to put, hmm. you know, hundreds and hundreds of people through this training in, in a relatively short period of time. So they and, made and the they commitment to go down this path. They saw a need. They saw the problem. They addressed the problem and they said, here is a here is something that can help us solve this problem. And they made the investment. Obviously, it's a financial investment. And, and they made a commitment to do that. So what was the result of that? Well, I'll tell you, and, and it, it's, it's an interesting because you said a financial investment. They, they didn't have to because it was grant funded, but yet it's still a financial investment because you have the scheduling. Mm-hmm. You know, work hours represents money. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do, you, how do you work around that? So they made a commitment to put their people through 16 hours of wellness training over the course of eight weeks. Uh, and a large organization, that's a scheduling nightmare. Mm-hmm. And and they did it. The results were were phenomenal, and they were uh, nice enough. I'll, I'll tell you, they gave us permission to share their results. So they were upwards of twenty four percent in post traumatic stress indicators at the beginning of the training, uh, and they were down around seven point two percent thirty days after the training. Hmm. That's wow. a significant significant shift. It's amazing. Uh, and and of course, they saw that all across across the board in, in all the areas, all the dimensions of wellness. Um, it, they realized significant results. And so, and it was like that on other organizations. I'll say the, uh, the UC Davis uh, organization went through it and, and some of the people down at Menifee, Pat Walsh, the chief down there, he's uh, has a, a situation going where his people are allowed. They have to on duty. They have to, they have to do something for wellness. Hmm. That's, that's, it's, it's not it's a, hey, I'm going to allow. It's not a, you can do that if you want to, but you no, know, this is no. a mandate. No, mm-hmm. no, he has a mandate towards it. And, and that was when they started that organization. They said, hey, we're going to have a culture of wellness. Do you, think, and, do you think some leaders are afraid of setting that standard? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about using the word afraid mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, I don't want to call somebody else who's, who's donned a uniform afraid of, of anything because I know what they go through to get there and what they have gone through. Mm-hmm. I'll say that they have some very real concerns financially of what mm-hmm. things mean. Things, decisions they make have ramifications and some have uh, unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about new ground. They don't know what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. They can believe that it's going to be a good thing. Um, we can give them data to show them that it's going to be a good thing. But they still don't know if it's going to be a good mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, and they're like other people, right? They have, they have mortgages to pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, chiefs of police can be <laughs> dismissed because they get dismissed, right? And, right. and, and so... You know, it's real easy for me here to sit here and say, having having not been a chief of police and having not had to make that decision to do things, whether a city council was just going to dismiss me uh, because mm-hmm. um, it's easy for me to say, oh, this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, their decisions are, are challenging to make. But we do know that that this does start with leadership. 
because mm-hmm. they're the ones who have the power to do the things that 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 need to be put in place for it to happen. Mm-hmm. How uh, can you take someone, say, an, an agency who has uh, you know a police chief who's at he serves at the pleasure of the mayor or the city council? And how and you have a city council, perhaps that's, you know, tied on their purse strings and they don't want to make these changes for you. But you have a leader who wants to make the changes. How do you go about to make that happen? So so the beautiful thing about our program is is one of the things that really got me interested in it when I was talking to Dr. Thornton is is she created a program that produces anonymized data. That's how we're able to sit here and look at, say, uh, an organization like San Francisco Sheriff's that we're able to give you the, the anonymous. We can't tell you who mm-hmm. uh, because we purge that. We're not going to be able to tell you which individuals on that department. Mm-hmm. They, now, they have access to their individual scores mm-hmm. anonymously, but we can give the organization a report and say, like, hey, this is you can make a data driven decision about wellness now because you have this across the eight dimensions of wellness and adverse symptomologies you're able to see where your organization was and where they are now. And you can put your efforts, time and efforts into these specific areas because they also have real world meaning. So Mm -hmm. if we were to take cognitive wellness, you know, it it could be a lack of engagement and they could create opportunities for their individuals to be engaged. And maybe that results in somebody working two, three years longer. Maybe it results in somebody not leaving the job. Maybe it results in more attention to detail so we have higher quality work. Um, I think there, there's an opportunity to put metrics on wellness and metrics on performance related to it. And, and that's one way of doing it is being able to come back with this data and say, like, listen, there's plenty of organizations that have gone through uh, wellness training. Here's the data from it. And, and, and this is what it means. You know, if it means um, because, again, our organization where we, we want to help people leave their live their best lives. Of course, we also we also want to. Um, eliminate tragedies wherever possible. Mm-hmm. We, we, I, I, I want to have heard about my very last cop suicide. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear about another one. Um, I've, he- I've heard about enough of them and I don't want to hear any more. Mm-hmm. And again, what we are doing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this goes across the, the board to all areas of public safety, where they're talking about fire, dispatch, and police. The, the suicide rate is unacceptable. The, mm-hmm. the rates of not people not living their lives in a fully rewarding and engaged way is too high. And, and we have to do something about it in order to get a healthy workforce that's going to have quality, safety, and productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what, what leader of an organization wouldn't want to have the highest safety, quality, and productivity? Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So, you know, and, and, you know, that's one of the interesting things when we start looking at law enforcement, you know, there, there's not a lot of uh, key performance indicators used. Uh, we mm-hmm. have a, we're all over the place as far as how we do evaluations. And, you know, the question is, you know, what is, what does a car stop look like? Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to, if you were to go to, you know, across, you know, to every state and to all these different areas, it's going to look different. Sure. But there are some, there are some, some certain fundamentals about what it looks like and what good looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you need to train to that. And the same thing when it comes to wellness, right? Mm-hmm. If a, a, an, an officer who is well in spirit, body, and mind can work with a higher level of productivity, quality, and safety. Hmm. It's, it's anybody knows when you're not sleeping right, you're not thinking right. Hmm. Anybody knows when you're not eating right, your body's not going to perform right. Anybody knows if you're not, um, not feeling it, so to speak, in all the other areas of wellness, whether it's spiritual, psychological, cognitive, uh, social, uh, it, you're not going to be the best version of you on any given day at work. Mm-hmm. And we can do things to empower people to be better. And, you know, that's one of the things that comes out of our program is intentionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, pe- people start to live their lives in a far more and attend to their wellness in a far more intentional way. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, the other component of that is, is having a mentor, having a coach, mm-hmm. having somebody, you know, who's going to speak truth to you. Um, you know, instead of telling you something you want to hear, sometimes one of the worst things we have is a friend because our friends don't want to hurt our feelings sometimes. Well, our true friends hurt our feelings sometimes. Mm-hmm. True friends tell you, um, and, and to, and to, again, I'll quote, uh, Colonel Jim Frazier, your, your true friends, your true friends will tell you when your baby's ugly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's, um, and it may hurt to hear it, 
mm-hmm. but but your true friends will tell you that. And and that's what you want and, and, and our mentors so and coaches. And, you know, it's just I was again reminded today of just just some amazing people in the first responder community. And I and I met you know some I went on my last trip out to California and and one of those was a firefighter from San Diego and uh, he called me this afternoon. Just yep. out of the blue, my phone rang. He was like, I just want to see how you're doing. I just want to check in on you. And it was just so, it was like, wow, that, that, that's a friend. You know, I, I met him once, you know, well, I met him twice and hung out with him for a day and, you know, got to know him and his, you know, some of his family and some of his other friends. And, and here I'm just a guy that lives on the East coast that he met one time and he called me to, you know, check on me. That's because you're so likable, Conrad. <laughs> well, I wish. <laughs> well, thank you. But, you know, that that's something that you don't see very often, even, you know, in normal lives. Sometimes you, you just don't have those kind of even, you know, kind of a friendship in passing almost that, hey, I'm just going to reach out and I'm going to check on and see how you're doing. And which, which meant a whole lot to me. You know, it really made me really appreciate you know what this what what this guy's doing and because he's working you know he's an active firefighter and he's in the middle of the battle himself you know and helping others and and he's reaching out and just saying hey i wanted to just wanted to know how you're doing and i think i think sometimes we need in the first responder community that should happen more often than it does yeah for for sure but you know that one of the the realities is that you know, almost everybody in this community works overtime, mm-hmm. disproportionately compared to the private sector, um, because staffing is a problem. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I read an article that was um, recently it was written in 2020 talking about uh, it was kind of trying to debunk the attrition problem in in law enforcement, uh, basically asserting that that we don't have an attrition problem. That you know, the people we are losing are are people we should be losing. Hmm. And we just wanted to make sure we're maintaining the quality of people who are already maintaining for the most part. And so um, I would say if that was true, we wouldn't have mandatory overtime hmm. because we have it. It's a reality. Almost every department I talk to is, is there's ongoing and it's not just for short periods of time. It's been continuous and ongoing mandatory hmm. overtime. Uh, it, it happened when I was young on the job and it happened when right before my retirement, it was, it was, you know, the only time, um, you know, we did go through a bankruptcy in Orange County at, at one point, and that was the only time we didn't have mandatory overtime. Uh, you know, as soon as we came out of that, we went back to the part of there was mandatory overtime. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be a reality if, if we had staff. So staffing yeah. is an issue, and it's a staffing yeah. center, it's issue in comm centers. It's a staffing issue in fire departments. Um, yeah, I've heard, talked to a number of fire, you know, people in the fire services and said, you know, and, and actually one of my friends was on duty and I spent some time with him and, and he, he was like, I got to work. I got to work again. You know, I got to stay over for another 24. And, you know, yeah. for them, you know, they're often don't get sleep through the night and then they're on duty again for 24 hours. And that's, you know, you're up, you know, potentially for 48 hours, you know, that's not healthy for anyone. You know, yeah. And you're driving and, and, big trucks and, you know, helping others. So. Yeah. We look at, you know, in the work that was done up at, I believe the Washington state university from their sleep lab that they did on decision-making on in law enforcement specifically related to driving and, and, uh, and fatigue. And mm-hmm. it is, it's, if, when I first saw that presentation, uh, as they were doing the numbers, I swear, I thought, I thought there were a lot of people getting up and leaving. Hmm. And I thought, they don't want it. They don't want this information. Hmm. They don't want to be accountable to this because if they have this information, that's, that's valid information. And they're ordering people to work over to drive that large vehicle. And hmm. in these situations, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's a problem liability there. potentially. Yeah. I have a friend who's a, who's in law enforcement and, you know, he told me there are times when, you know, he's, his agency has swing shifts, you know, where, where he's on nights one week and he's on days the next week and then evenings mm-hmm. the next, you know, and he says, I can't, I can't get a normal night's sleep ever. And he said, sometimes I'm going to work on two hours worth of sleep. And Oh, many times you, if, if you, you know, anybody's been on the job long enough, that's a, a routine. Um, but, you know, which leads to the next component, right? We start getting this vicious cycle. You're working these extra long hours, uh, 
which means you have less time with your family and less time to meet people outside and, and interact with your friends that are outside the profession, mm-hmm. which then leads to the only people you're around, um, you, you know, are, are the other people who you work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the only people who are awake when you're awake. Those are the only people who have to, you know, to socialize your, you know, we used to talk about, Oh, this is my, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's not exclusive to public safety, but the people who do shift work in general, mm-hmm. right? There's right. this interesting thing. It was called, Oh, it's my Friday. Mm-hmm. But if people who don't do shift work, that sounds like a weird statement. My Friday, mm-hmm. my Monday, um, you know, the, the, the calendar isn't real to us. It's, it, this is my Monday, you know, my two, my, my Wednesday is my Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my tu- Tuesday is my Sunday. And so, mm-hmm. you know, your calendar becomes, uh, to use a technical term, it becomes all jacked up. Yeah. And, and you can only live, then you start only living in the world of the other people who mm-hmm. are like you, you know, vampires, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who are sleeping during the daytime and working at night. And then on your days off, you know, trying to shift it to have normal interactions with your, your family members and loved ones then. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, then you, so you start your Monday is all jacked up right. because your, your sleep patterns off yeah. and it just leaves, you know, puts you in a place when you're, when you're fatigued and exposed to trauma it puts mm-hmm. you at a deficit for being resilient to come back from it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to, you have to start living your life in a disciplined way to, to put yourself in the best position in the best place when you're exposed to the traumas, mm-hmm. you know, and, and of course the traumas are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I saw this in action um, very specifically. There was a, a deputy that I worked with and, I wasn't working with him on this day. I was on the other side of the other side of our patrol area, but heard about a a young girl, and I believe she was a kindergartner. And the 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 brother had come home from college, had gotten home from college that day, and wanted to know if he could take the family car. Uh, and as he was backing out of the driveway, he accidentally ran over his mm-hmm. little sister. Mm-hmm. And the deputy who gets there first, um, he go, he got on the radio multiple times, like, "Hey, when is?" What are the paramedics going to get here? Well, the, the little girl's father was a surgeon or doctor of some type. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had, and, and told the mom right then, you know, he, he assessed the situation. He knew, he saw the nature of the injuries mm-hmm. and she wasn't going to make it. Well, no more than a week later, I was working area partners with this same deputy. And he got a call and um, we're working day shift together. And he got a call saying child versus vehicle Hmm. child on a bike versus vehicle Hmm. and i just saw his face and um i told him i'll take the call Mm -hmm. and the look of relief on his face and fortunately for me when i got there it was minor it was extremely minor it actually the child had ran into a stopped car with a -hmm. a stop sign and no injuries at all so Mm -hmm. but the trauma on this deputy's face when that happened was was i could see just how he Mm -hmm. was just devastated uh, just by merely getting the call and he hadn't even gone there. So he was already reliving that worst case scenario. And, you know, and this is something that happens again and again. Now you imagine you get that situation when you're already fatigued mm-hmm. or when you're not managing your own personal life too. You have just, you know, the, the regular, everybody has regular stressors, right? Whether it's um, relationships, finances, you know, you don't get to pick your family sometimes. Family puts <laughs> burdens on you. And, and so you have all these things on you. And then you go to work and you have this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you have one bad call one week and a similar call you know, comes out of the radio the next week. And you can just see the trauma that this person was going through. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, we go to the gym to become strong before the fight. We go to the range to, to make sure our firearm skills are, are up to par you know, where we need to be when we have to deploy it or driving. Your firefighters, you're practicing throwing ladders. Oh, they're constantly, they're, they're, they're out there with their power tools, cutting, you know, cutting roofs and walls. And, right. um, you know, we always joke that they're, you know, either blow drying their hair or cooking, but you know, I, I get it. They do, they do work a lot of the time yeah. too, but um, the, uh, you know, so, but if we, you know, that the, the problem comes is we know people are going to be exposed to trauma. We know they're going to have challenges. And yet there's nothing in place to make sure with accountability, because there's accountability on the firearms, there's mm. accountability on knowing the law, there's accountability on driving. How come we don't have accountability on taking care of yourself mm-hmm. on wellness, putting a policy in place 
saying we're going to create this culture of wellness. We're going to have policies in place that we're going to have resources available. Not only that, we're going to, you know, with that comes a return to work policy. Mm. What happens when somebody accesses the resources that rightfully takes them off the job for a period of time so they can get healthy? How do we return them to work in a way that doesn't stigmatize them, that doesn't damage their career, you know? Um, and, or put them right back in the same, same place they were. Same situation, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the question about, you know, is, is it a resource available to you if using it ruins your career? Hmm. Because for some people, reality is it's just not an option. Mm-hmm. It just isn't because they, they're like, they're seeing like, hey, this ruins my career. I have, you know, I have kids, I have a mortgage. I have, you know, a spouse that I've committed to bringing in income. This is, you know, at some point, it's the only way that you can make a living in life, mm-hmm. right? You, you put your eggs into that basket of, sure. of law enforcement and to access the resource, you know, for something that is, you know, the trauma you're exposed to on the job could take you away from doing that the way you know how to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if it, you know, or at least, you know, ruin your upward mobility, right? Because everybody is also thinking about career path. Everybody has things they want to accomplish in their career, mm-hmm. uh, experiences them, you know, and, and, and thank goodness there's some people that step up and do it and, and go into the leadership and administration mm-hmm. components of it. Uh, because, you know, at, at some point they're sacrificing, cause I don't know of a single person when they, you know, you, you go ask a bunch of people entering the academy and you say, Hey, what do you want to do when you, you know, when you grow up as a cop and none of them say, I want to do the budget. Right. <laughs> none of them go, Oh, I want to do the budget. Yeah. I want to make policy. That's, that's not what they say. Mm-hmm. They want to go, you know, they want to fly the helicopter. They want to handle a canine. They want to be on the spot. Team. They want to work, you know, undercover. They, they want to do the things that, you know, in their mind are making a difference. Mm-hmm. Right. They want to, they want to go be impactful. But along the way, people realize, hey, somebody has to step up and do this. Um, you know, a lot of the times they they do it, they step up because they see somebody doing it and they go like, ha, you know, the whole time I've been here, they they haven't done anything. Let me step up there and do it. And and of course, then they get into the same situation where they where they're they're trying to make something happen, but but you have a culture in the command and in government too that prevents them from moving the needle forward too. So how and, can how can agency leaders implement some of these you know policies or training in at the academy level where new recruits coming in this is kind of part of the dna of what this organization is going to do well you know one of the common feedback that we get a common feedback we get people who go through our classes this is something that we should have i should have had we had one said i've been in this for 25 years and i should have gotten this when i was in the academy Hmm. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm glad to get it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have some time left, but I should have had this the mm-hmm. whole time. Um, and there are some organizations that are doing some things about it. But, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, we, we think that and in our program, what happens is you, you get an assessment, right? You're assessing what's your current state. You're looking at the ways you were going to do things. Then you're going to work with the mentor and 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 hear from people who have expertise in the dimensions of wellness about how you can build capital in those particular areas and how you're gonna hold yourself accountable. This is the big thing. Um, Wellness has accountability. Hmm. You have to be accountable to yourself. One component, you know, one of the dimensions is physical wellness. Um, No one can go to the gym for you. No Hmm. one can choose to eat the healthy food for you. You have to make that choice and do it yourself. And, you know, no one can make the decision for you to get enough sufficient sleep to replenish your body. You have to start making those decisions and holding yourself accountable. Um, this, this is one of the big takeaways from our program is that you're responsible, you're accountable to yourself for your own wellness. That being said, your organization, when we have organizational stressors, it's beneficial to the organization to create an environment and a culture that supports wellness. Because we know that the, what has been happening isn't working. Mm-hmm. We know that the culture now is not a culture of wellness. Um, because we because we can refer back to the you know the, the data on post-traumatic stress injuries, mm-hmm. on anxiety, on depression. Uh, our our numbers are off the chart compared to the general population. Mm-hmm. And and you know, if if you know, if we go, you know, to each leader out there, if, if we go another year without doing something. That's on you. Isn't that, that the kind of the definition of insanity? You, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah. 
it, it, it is, you know, and, and that's, and that's, you know, you have to have a plan for your wellness, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, I, I think it was Eisenhower who said, you know, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Uh, <laughs> and then I think Mike Tyson, you know, took that a little further says everybody has a plan until I punch him in the face. <laughs> uh, so so it, it needs that culture mm-hmm. and that support because I can plan for my wellness, but something is going to go wrong mm. along the way. And that's where I need, you know, the mentors, the coach, the support organization to, that, that we all needed to help ourselves get back on track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's one of the one of the components of wellness is, is having your own wellness plan, executing mm-hmm. it and being able to recognize when you're in distress, being able to recognize it is one of the, the things that's not happening right now that we we live in a culture where especially in law enforcement, where we lack the ability to recognize when we're in distress. So it takes everybody having a common language. Uh, you know, a, a whole organization to be able to recognize, hey, my buddy needs help right now. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing some things happening, you know, but because we've gone through the same training, because we have a common language on wellness, I can go to him and I can have a conversation or I can go to her and have a conversation about wellness using the same language. Mm-hmm. And now we can, you know, it's the whole thing. It's like, if I was to ask somebody, hey, Conrad, how you doing? You might say, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You just know, good means word. <laughs> yeah. Does good mean I'm not jumping off a building today? Right. Or does good mean I'm thriving? That yeah. I'm actually living, you know, doing things that are happening the way that I want them mm-hmm. to have to happen. So that's one of the one of the benefits of training around wellness is training creates a common language that mm-hmm. we can speak to. You know, that we start and, and we use the word capital you know, across the dimensions of wellness of so building it, you know, before you need to spend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start putting putting money in that bank uh, in each mm-hmm. dimension of wellness, and that way it's there for when you need to spend it for that. You know, when the trauma and the challenge hits, you know, you're it's going to come down a little bit, but you have the skills then to draw upon your other areas of wellness, and then also to build that bank back up mm-hmm. after you come out the other side. You know, your bounce back mm-hmm. after it. But you know, as we start talking about you know adversity, adverse symptomologies, right? Adverse symptoms. Uh, whether it's anxiety, stress, depression, right? That gives us a common language to talk about things that are happening in a, in a negative way in my life. I also can start talking about ways that things are happening in a positive way. We start talking about, you know, psychological capital, financial capital, physical capital, and, and start to start to have that common language, common conversation with peers, coaches, mentors, subordinates, superiors, whoever it might be within your organization. Mm-hmm. But, that's the, you know, when you go to an academy, you you learn an entire new language. You learn a radio code. Mm-hmm. You learn the penal code. You learn the vehicle code um, that people from the outside, they don't understand what you're talking. We can, entire, we can have an entire conversation speaking in code and mm-hmm. nobody else knows what we're saying because we have that common language of communication. Mm-hmm. That's what we need when it comes to wellness. We need a common language of communication instead of saying, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, if you're, if you're watching out there and you have a question for Robert, just to put it in the comments and uh, we'll pitch those to him. So what's something that I can do today or tomorrow to start my journey toward resiliency and wellness? Well, the, 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 the first thing is to get a, a real, um, a genuine assessment of where you're at, right? It, it, Cause it's no different for an individual than, than for an organization. We said that, you know, for an organization to create that culture of wellness, the first thing, this, the decision has to be made at the top. Mm-hmm. I want a culture of wellness, right? The next thing that would have to happen is say, what does it look like? Which means you have to know where we're at. We have to assess that gap. What does wellness look like? Um, and what am I gonna use to define that? And then we have to start establishing, you know, hey, these are these are my policies, my personal policies and practices. Um, you know, a, a couple of years back for a while, I went, I went vegetarian Monday through Friday hmm. and it would became my, my personal, um, policy, right. That mm-hmm. through the week I didn't eat meat. It was just what I did for quite a while. And, and I had great success. I felt fantastic doing it, but I also knew that if I tried to do it completely, I would fail because I also like rewarding myself and I like, I like steak and beer. So, you know, Monday through Friday, it was no meat, no alcohol, but on a Saturday I could have, I would reward myself with a ribeye and a beer. And, um, and it was a policy that was sustainable Mm -hmm. for me. I could keep doing it. So that's the other thing that you have to realize like, okay, so what can we do? 
what's within our budget and what am I willing to do? And, and so from an individual level, you can do that. And, and although we do organizational training, we also do individual training. So anybody is more than welcome to uh, go to our website and um, take our training at 16 hours over the course of eight weeks. And it gives you these particular tools. Uh, it starts giving you that, that language of wellness, um, helps you create your own personal wellness plan, and then helps you figure out how you're going to hold yourself accountable to it. Because again, I've said it again and again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what we do in our organizations. We try to close the gap between where people are currently at and where they want to go for wellness, give them the tools for it and remind them that it's about accountability. It's, it's organizational accountability. It's individual accountability. And if, you know, it's, if I'm going to commit to something, if I'm going to make a plan, it doesn't do me any good to have done the plan if I'm not going to hold myself accountable to it. Mm-hmm. Well, man, this hour has gone by so fast. It's been a it's been a fantastic conversation. So remind everybody of where they can go to to uh, to, to, to kind of find you and what, what they can uh, what they can learn there. Sure, they can use as as I always uh, like the term. My dad always uses the Google. Uh, you can get on the <laughs> Google and and you could do uh, pathfinderresilience.com. Uh, or you can put in Pathfinder Resilience uh, Navigating Adversity. That's uh, our primary training course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a website there and it'll navigate you through it. Uh, there's, you'll find on the website, there's Dr. Renee Thornton. There'll be a, a video available on one of the pages there that she really details uh, um, about five, six minutes long of her detailing how we delve into each dimension of wellness, uh, who, who, the, who the expert in that area is. And yeah, there it is, that site right there. Wow, you have some technical skills, Conrad. <laughs> you <laughs> and, speak uh, it, there it is, right? <laughs> there it is. Yeah. So, you know, she really gets into it. So you're hearing it from the, you know, I have to say I'm the knuckle dragger who believes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's the lady with the uh, initials behind her name that has the, uh, the academic credentials that, um, you know, she speaks from a place of expertise and, uh, and knowledge on this. And um, it, it, you know, our job is to move the needle, give you an opportunity to, to use these tools. and um, Oh, and I see somebody put in their pers- uh, plus personal responsibility. Gary, uh, uh, thanks yeah. for that. That's that's very true. It's 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 it, it, the accountability and responsibility are two different things. Uh, they're, they're they they look a lot alike, but 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 they're not exactly the same. And you know, we have to be accountable to ourselves, but we have a responsibility to our organizations also. Um, you know, when I signed on the dotted line to to go work in law enforcement. Uh, when I graduated academy, of course, I could run and jump over that six-foot wall, right? Individuals have a responsibility to be able to show up and handle the call, too. You know, so to take care of yourself on a physical level. If you're working that, that you know, some comm centers, you know, are difficult to, you know, just be able to stay awake in the middle of the night uh, and, and and stay frosty if you're to handle handle those calls. And and so we have a responsibility, uh, accountable to ourselves, and a responsibility to our organizations, to the public. Um, to, to, to live up to what the expectations are. Hmm. And well, we, doing, we need to be well, to, we need to be well to do that. This has been a fantastic conversation and we're going to start wrapping it up here. Um, what, so, so kind of final thoughts, what gives you hope? Well, the results, the results, you know, um, I like things that work. Uh, and, um, and so to me, you know, seeing the data that come out of the work that we've already been able to do, uh, gives me hope. I, I know that, you know, that this program that works, uh, and, and I'm sure there's others also, uh, you know, I've, this, this is ours and this is the one that, um, I'd love people to be able to try, but try something, you know, whatever, if, if you have been doing something and it's not working, try something else to see what works. But what gives me hope is that when I see the data from, from the organizations that have gone through our training and, and in hearing the student testimonials, uh, and some of the letters that we've given, uh, that we've gotten from people, uh, regarding what the training has meant to them. Uh, it, it, it gives me hope that if we can just get, you know, get the leadership to see that there's a path for them to go down, that we can move that needle and we can reduce, we can reduce stop suicides and we can empower public safety personnel to, to just live a more rewarding and better life. Mm-hmm. Very good. And we'll, we'll leave it there. So thank you, 
Robert, for taking time to be on the program tonight. And uh, I'm going to give a little teaser for the next program. So, Robert, stick around uh, after we sign off and we'll wrap right. up offline. But uh, just for all of you who are watching, very excited to announce that in, on December 1st, we are going to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He is going to be here to right. talk about a lot of different things, but we're really going to focus in on sleep. He's been uh, talking about that a lot. So he's going to be on the show live December 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern time. So be sure to join us for that. It'll be a fantastic conversation. Robert, thanks again for joining us. And for all of you, thank you for being a part of the first responder community. Thank you for doing what you do to keep our communities healthy and safe. And uh, we pray that you have a great evening, a great night and be well and be sure to take care of yourself and to take care of those around you. Have a great evening and um, we'll see you next time on PTSD 911 Presents.